Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Sameer Saran from the Observer Research Foundation. Sameer is the president of the ORF. He curates the Raisina Dialogue, India's annual flagship platform on geopolitics and geoeconomics. He chairs SciFi, India's annual conference on cybersecurity and internet governance. Sameer is also a commissioner of the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace. He's a member of the South Asia Advisory Board of the World Economic Forum and a part of its Global Future Council on Cybersecurity. He's also the director of the Center for Peace and Security at the Sardar Patel Police University in Jodhpur. He has authored uh, four books and he's obviously written many academic papers. You must have seen Samir on mainstream media too. Samir, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kushal. So Samir, I've purposely titled this podcast, The Past, Present and Future of Indian Foreign Policy for a very specific reason. So let's break this down into four parts. So let's start with the past first. So if I was to ask you that what is the spectrum of Indian foreign policy, obviously I'm talking about post-independence Indian foreign policy, let's say from the Nehruvian era till today. So how do you gauge the, the, the journey of Indian foreign policy? Let's say, the, you know, everybody keeps talking about non-alignment, but I think that's just not good enough if we were to explain Indian foreign policy to people. So, so what are your views if we were to analyze India's foreign policy post-independence? Kushal, uh, first of all, I want to uh, share with you that I am not someone who's uh, uh, trained in international relations. My first degree is an uh, engineering degree. And thereafter, I have pursued the political science and climate policy as my uh, final uh, uh, level of education. Uh, I have basically uh, been a keen watcher of foreign policy. I have uh, been reading uh, up on foreign policy. I've been working with some stalwarts who I've uh, immensely benefited from. And of course, these days I try and I'm an amateur writer and I put together some words to share my thoughts on, on, on uh, the India's external engagements. Um, in my assessment, you know, I see Indian foreign policy in the past being shaped by uh, two very interesting contradictions. Uh, uh, and uh, the first contradiction was uh, being internationalist versus trying to build an unique Indian identity, which required an inward looking agenda. So India in its early days was still experimenting with that idea of nationhood yeah. uh, 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 as it had, uh, in a sense, acquired on 15th August, that is today, 74 years ago, 73 years ago. Um, and um, uh, at the same time, uh, because it, it had uh, a very uh, important role in the erstwhile colonial arrangement and it was therefore an external actor uh, uh, organically, it also had an international footprint. So India had two important and contradictory roles and, and, uh, and um, uh, what do I say, responsibilities uh, as, a, as a young nation to continue to be in, 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 you know, engaged with its external responsibilities and yet somehow build a very cohesive and strong uh, nation. So um, the first driver of our foreign policy was exactly this. And I think it produced uh, three very interesting outcomes. Uh, the first outcome was uh, what uh, still continues, which was uh, what I call the, the mood of solidarity. Uh, and you build partnerships with those who were in similar positions like you, the, the countries who were getting free of their colonial, who were shedding their colonial yoke, who were achieving independence, who had been uh, under subjugation, and uh, you become comrades and partners and, and, and co-travelers in the new journey that lies awaits all of us. So I think the first was solidarity. So you saw, uh, uh, you know, eventually this form of solidarity result in um, the, the Bandung conference, the non-aligned movement, and many other manifestations which saw what we today call South-South cooperation or uh, you know, partnership of erstwhile colonies, etc. So I think you saw this one trend emerge quite clearly in Indian foreign policy. And I'll come specifically to non-alignment a bit later since you've mentioned it. The second trend, of course, was uh, India's role as a balancing power. And I think people don't realize this, but India's role as a balancing power uh, uh, was quite, it was imposed on it quite early in its life as a as a as a nation uh, we were having to balance the the, the the interest of the winners of the world war ii um, pretty much as we became independent because that is when the new winners were also exerting their their influence around the world so as a very young nation 
uh, we had to, uh, in some sense, either co-opt or uh, contest or rebuff many of the, uh, uh, the dynamics that were resulting from uh, America's determination to build the world in its image, the, the Soviet Union uh, to consolidate its gains, um, uh, a China that was beginning to emerge. And you could see some of our own trepidations, contradictions, uh, and, and uh, uh, our own, um, what do I say, uh, sometimes uh, seemingly clumsy decisions that came because of our having to do this at a very, very uh, nascent stage uh, in the life of a nation. And the third and final, of course, was uh, the, what I would call uh, the, the, the civilization state and the carry forward uh, that that it clearly began uh, uh, impacting our foreign policy from very early days, the subcontinent, the South Asian region, the neighborhood. And I think much of that, uh, the, the Indian subcontinent, which was pretty much, I would say, at that time, the euphemism for the Indian civilization state got carried forward also into our foreign policy. So you would see these very three distinct, um, playing a balancing role between great powers, creating a solidarity framework with uh, the emerging world and continuing with the civilization state identity through the Indian subcontinent and the South Asian region eventually. So I think these three were the very um, uh, Im three important strands of, of uh, what our foreign policy was responding to in its early times. Uh, on the non-alignment, um, it had two very interesting uh, um, dimensions. Uh, I think we have forgotten one of them and we have overemphasized on the second one of them. Uh, generally, uh, it is fashionable to uh, uh, beat up Nehru today, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I I have I hold no brief for him. Uh, he, he was a man who built his own brand, and he, he was possibly India's most uh, famous son uh, uh, for the longest period. Uh, and he requires you know, no support, and he's not going to be diminished by criticism. But uh, uh, you know, we we normally see this to be a Nehruvian romantic uh, assessment of the world where we can be non-aligned, where we don't have to take positions, where we can be on the middle of the line, where we are not uh, uh, you know, exerting influence and power and, and real politique, and we are trying to escape from responsibilities of nationhood. There is one school of thought that places non-alignment in this segment of, of thinking, sure. or, or, or shades of this segment of thinking. Uh, the second, uh, which I uh, believe is lesser in number, but I belong to that school, believes that actually Nehru uh, has been misunderstood. And perhaps uh, he has not been recorded uh, in a manner in which this particular facet of non-alignment has, uh, uh, has been agitated uh, consistently. And that is that non-alignment was a realist foreign policy. For me, non-alignment was a sh uh, tip of the spear of a very poor country that had to create room to maneuver. I think a country that required all sorts of financial assistance, military assistance, political assistance from everyone around the world found a space for itself in spite of two large overbearing powers forcing it to take sides, forcing it to toast someone's agenda. And I think non-alignment offered India that room to maneuver. He was able to bring together a coalition of countries with no money in his pocket and build an India brand, an international India space at a time when it was impossible and no one else had options to do anything similar. Uh, they had to either choose the US or the USSR. And, and Mr. Nehru, the Prime Minister, was able to create an Indian space. So I think it was also a realist foreign policy at that particular time when India had very limited, limited resources and means to be influential in, in, in too many sectors and spheres and domains and geographies. And he was able to put together uh, a, a, a very, very, very sharp Indian uh, foreign policy proposition, um, uh, an India way, uh, very early into the Indian state. So I think that India way that we talk about today, that does India have a foreign policy proposition for the world? I think uh, Prime Minister Nehru was the first one who defined the India way. And of course, we can, uh, we can um, uh, examine, we can deconstruct, we can criticize uh, uh, for uh, non-alignment, uh, uh, you know, 60 years from when it was constructed. But to be honest, at that particular moment, perhaps it was a realist foreign policy. He didn't have too many options. He didn't have too much room to maneuver. And he was able to build the space within his limited uh, 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 political capital that he enjoyed. And I think in that sense, it was also a realist foreign policy. I think non-alignment um, and its second avatar, this romantic 
uh, not taking a side, not taking a stand, not taking a decision, became uh, in some sense, uh, you know, it had an affinity to our traditional bureaucratic framework. <laughs> and they kind of created a deadly, heady mix. Uh, uh, you know, Babus don't like to take a decision. Non-alignment did not want us to take a decision. So yeah. I think they kind of mixed well. And, and, and in some sense, uh, there was a downward spiral there. So instead of being a progressive, forward-looking, uh, uh, propositional country that was putting forward new agendas for the world, that was taking lead in shaping uh, geopolitical alignments, that was building coalitions of the future, that was seeking technology for the future, that was creating economic flows and trading agendas that would shape the future order, we became uh, the global opposition, the trade union. You know, that came good to us, easily to us. We became the global trade union leaders. Non-alignment resulted in India donning the aftar of becoming the uh, the opposition in chief of anything the world wanted to do, yeah. and uh, and and I think that remained with us for a bit too long, and that uh, uh, can be classified as Hindu rate of growth or any other rate of growth. Uh, I don't want to go into uh, those labels because I think labels are self-defeating. But uh, eventually, are um, uh, are ready and uh, uh, um, and a passionate embrace of of towing the middle path. Uh, that would be the path of least resistance or least change or least disruption uh, uh, was to become expensive for our national growth uh, is still causing uh, us political headaches has uh, created uh, certain uh, reversals in our in, in our uh, important partnerships and uh, 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 I think uh, uh, it should have been disbanded or it should have been shared and it should have been done away with sometimes uh, under uh, Prime Minister Indra Gandhi, yet it was continued, I think, beyond its sell-by date. But non-alignment, when it was thought of and when it was built, put together, was, I, was, a, was a sharp political idea. Uh, uh, it, should have been, uh, it should have an expiry date and it was not thrown away at that particular point of time. So that's my one idea on non-alignment. Uh, I think in the 90s, uh, out of desperation, we needed to change. Uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, I think uh, people always underestimate the power of the 90s for India. I think the 90s were the most important decade. True. Uh, uh, and uh, I think Narsimha Rao was clearly one of India's uh, most uh, uh, important prime ministers. Uh, and not because he was uh, extremely sharp, clever, wise, wicked, and he must have been all of it. But I think what transpired uh, in, those, uh, in that particular prime ministerial term was to put together the building blocks that, uh, uh, in a sense, would allow us to escape the shackles of, of our previous uh, four or five decades of inertia. Mm -hmm. And I think a part of it was caused by our economic state because we were in a bad position and it was a gun to the head or a back to the wall uh, 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 policy ecosystem, policy environment where we had to make tough decisions in terms of opening up, creating giving the economy some room to breathe, allowing our businesses to, um, you know, to compete at least um, regionally, if not globally at that time. Uh, and, and, you know, that moment uh, also put together, therefore, uh, the new thinking around um, what India's strategic interest. So, you know, till now, uh, till that particular point of time, um, geopolitics kept the economic arguments out of it. Hmm. Economics was largely rooted uh, within domestic contexts. Uh, you, you, uh, the, uh, the external engagement was limited to either getting raw material or exporting surplus. But we were not a surplus economy and hence our obsession at that time was purely getting raw material in. It was a, our external engagement was limited to uh, an import economy. Uh, with very little scope and ability to send out uh, uh, value-added uh, products uh, to the world. And 90s began to see that change. And you would see that uh, the Bombay Club uh, would be dismantled. You would see uh, uh, the, uh, the beginnings of the big Indian transnational corporations. Birlas would find their own rhythm at that time. Um, the, the reliances would emerge you would see a whole series of new companies come up, which some of them don't exist today in the next stage of our economic disruption. But you saw a, a whole new enterprise culture come up alongside a whole new political culture uh, that was being put into place. And I would say that brief period 
uh, of the 90s. Uh, the, and, and by the way, I, I think some of our most important regulatory decisions from uh, that have that impact our communications, insurance, and financial sectors today, uh, electricity today, uh, the conversations were either incubated or were completed during the coalition Raj as well. So when we had the short, you know small governments, people also mm -hmm. underestimate the contributions of those short small governments that sometimes came up with the uh, you know uh, seminal uh, outcomes. And um, I think that was a that was a very unique decade. Uh, uh, that, that saw the building blocks being created. Uh, by the time the decade uh, completed, by the time we reached the end of the 90s, early 2000s, I think we surprised ourselves. Uh, two of, uh, I think two or three things that happened. The first was uh, curtsy, uh, the Y2K bug. You know, this whole uh, fear of what yeah. will happen when, the, uh, when we reach the year 2000 with the computers work, trains work, flights work. Uh, you know, <laughs> people joke whether it was something that was built up by the Indians as a, as a scare, <laughs> that everyone wanted an Indian engineer. But, but you know, we had rebranded ourselves from being that mystical East to being these very competent technical people. So 2000s also saw the rebranding of India from being a land which was looked at as a land of the elephants and Maharajas and snake charmers and all the stereotypes you can think of. You know, the stereotypes began to get disrupted in the 90s. And I think that was the other change that was taking place in the 90s. The mm. competent Indian engineer, the rising engineer, the aspirational Indian, the, 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 the solutions provider of the IT sectors, the, uh, the guys who will save your airlines on, uh, on the turn of the midnight hour uh, as we hit 2000. Uh, but, you know, this all also helped change the brand of uh, India and courtesy um, uh, the Indians also repositioned us in a different uh, space. So I think all of this happened in those uh, 10 years, um, uh, post the Mandal until the turn of the century. And um, suddenly we had, at the end of that decade, realized we needed um, uh, external relations uh, far beyond just the political requirements of the past. We needed to think about our energy needs. We needed to think about our industrial needs. We needed to think about our food security, we needed to think about employment, we were sending the best uh, engineers and, and trained manpower, we were, we were also sending low skilled and unskilled labor, we were uh, becoming far more integrated uh, with our uh, region, neighborhood and of course uh, the old traditional uh, destinations such as uh, UK, Canada and the US. Um, Australia was beginning to enter into that mix as well. And then of course you saw uh, with the uh, with Prime Minister Vajpayee at the end of that century, end of, end of the last century, uh, a more uh, determined and a more um, sharp uh, Indian strategic architecture emerge. Uh, it was not necessarily articulated. It still isn't. I don't think anyone still knows what is India's strategic doctrine or you know, foreign policy posture. Uh, but at least signs of it began to emerge. We were a nuclear power and we were determined to be recognized as one. We were going to play a role in shaping the architecture of the region. We would uh, begin to open our mouth on certain political disputes which we had avoided. So we finally started voting in the UN uh, uh, rather than abstaining or always being the nays. You know, the, the so we, you saw a beginning of uh, 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 you know some steel to uh, uh, to the Indian um, external engagement that emerged, and I think with uh, uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, uh, uh, in a sense, take his government to sign the deal, the nuclear deal, uh, that became for the first time uh, a, a symbol of the importance of international relations and external engagements for us. That here was the Prime Minister who was willing to sacrifice his his seat. Uh, for uh, international partnership. Uh, and I think in that sense, uh, that was in, in many ways that the beginning, the end of the second stage and the beginning of the third stage of foreign policy, where India would uh, gradually begin to decide who its friends were going to be in the 21st century. And uh, while we have again never said that, but I think the India-US civil nuclear agreement was not about the nuclear power plants that would be installed in our country. It was about undoing the separations of the past and agreeing to build a common proposition of the future. 
So again, it was not articulated in this manner, but clearly that was an important moment. And since then, we have continued uh, to uh, the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean have continued to come closer. And our our political um, uh, assessments are uh, far more um, uh, uh, congruent than they ever were. And in that sense, uh, we are in that third stage of. Uh, of India's uh, um, external uh, posture. Um, and uh, to be fair, uh, our pri the current Prime Minister, our Prime Minister uh, uh, Modi, today has taken the baton from uh, the Manmohan Singh government and uh, uh, taken it further. And in that sense, uh, it, whether it was President Obama in his very end of his second term or uh, President Trump, I think the relationship with the US has got stronger. Um, the relationship uh, uh, that we uh, were starting to build in the East, the look East policies are, are again uh, more uh, resourced and uh, the West Asian uh, relationships which were uh, looked at with suspicion are uh, today very strategic in our uh, uh, geographical assessment. So we have seen the continuation of, uh, of uh, 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 a continuum in foreign policy, which is always a good thing for a country of our size and of our uh, of our importance. Um, and in that sense, I think at this point of time, uh, what uh, the only country that I have not touched on is because you wanted to come to that uh, was China. And I think what is really interesting was that uh, through these three stages of our foreign policy evolution, from non-alignment to uh, the unipolar moment and us engaging with the unipolar world in the 90s, which was Pax Americana, uh, to uh, a more multipolar current uh, post the financial crisis and, uh, and our signing the nuclear deal. Uh, we have had a degree of strategic ambiguity in recognizing our relationship with China. I think the only consistent element in our three stages of external engagement remains our rather abysmal assessment of how to engage with our most important neighbor, yeah. <laughs> which is China. And I think uh, 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 a rather weak, uh, rather clumsy, and a uh, rather unthought through approach to China has been the consistent threat through these three eras of, of, of external relations. Uh, I suspect that in the last couple of years, particularly since Doklam, we are beginning to finally realize who we are dealing with. Uh, it took us a while, 73 years or 72 years, but I think finally India hopefully is beginning to realize uh, that China uh, is um, an actor that uh, has remained consistent in its uh, relationships with India. We have refused to accept how, uh, what they, how they wanted the engagement to be and we have always uh, either romanticized or fetishized uh, uh, the China story uh, uh, in our own minds. Uh, either we have envied them or we have adulated or we, you know, or we have like really adored them or we have uh, 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 hated them. And I think we require a far greater degree of balance in our assessment with China because uh, the 21st century, uh, in my uh, assessment, it will not be a story of the India and the US or the US and China. I think by 2150, when we are the second largest economy in the world, the second half of the century will be decided by the conversations between Beijing and Italy. And uh, therefore, we have to start putting together a far more coherent um, and uh, a considered uh, approach to our dealing with China. All right, Samir, so let's dig a little deeper in the China issue. As you said, I wanted to talk about China with you. And, um, you know, you've been writing uh, a lot about the subject and you've appeared in the media too, and you've given your opinions there too. So, you see, I, I'm a little curious to touch upon a, a point there which you have mentioned that, it, you know, our understanding of our relationship with China is very complicated where in one scenario, we have said that uh, when it comes to China, we are, uh, you know, we have been just grossly wrong when it comes to our understanding. And then uh, in some scenarios, when it comes to China, we have been um, peculiarly dilly-dallying. We don't know what is there. So, so can you specify those points with uh, tangible examples? 
So, uh, let me, uh, you know, I said there has been a degree of consistency in our uh, failure to uh, assess China and therefore build a coherent relationship. I think that was what I was trying to uh, say in a rather convoluted manner in my previous segment. But let me just say that uh, there are three important aspects that need to be thought through uh, to understand um, my proposition. The first is that um, uh, I think uh, India has never really invested in internalizing the China behavior towards it. We have we have always sought to believe what we thought the Chinese uh, were towards us rather than clearly hearing what they were offering to us. I think there has been, a, we have refused to listen to Chinese propositions. Hmm. And this happened in the 50s and 60s. And you saw uh, 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 the 1962 war. This has happened in the 80s. This has happened in the 2000s. This happened with Manmohan Singh second term. This has happened with uh, Prime Minister Modi first term. And now it has happened with Prime Minister Modi second term. The Chinese have continuously seen you as a strategic competition have seen you as a potential threat, have mm. seen you as an irritant in a neighborhood they believe they should be managing. And of course, as they have evolved and grown as an economy and as a political unit, uh, it has become sharper and it has, this proposition is more dominant. And yet we have refused to clearly hear what they are saying. I don't know why 14 prime ministers have refused to... <laughs> Uh, assess China the way it should have been. And I think this is one of our feelings. That we have, China has done nothing other than to clearly tell us that you are the little one and I'm very happy to have you as the little one. But if you seek a partnership at parity, I am not going to offer you that. It has always been the case and we have refused to listen to this Chinese offer. We somehow believe we are brothers, we are uh, the uh, the co-creators of the Asian century, we are co-beneficiaries of the Asian uh, progress and we are going to be the co-managers uh, of the 21st century. Sorry. China has not given you that offer. India has received that offer without it being offered at all. And <laughs> this is one contradiction. And this has been something that has remained consistent, that our failure to understand our neighbor is a consistent Indian thread through various administrations when it comes to China. Number two, and this is extremely important. We have also refused to let our people know about the realities of the relationship with China. We lied to them in 1962. We hid the facts in 1967. We had a few uh, and at least one significant clash uh, 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 during the Congress um, uh, government. We, we tried to, uh, in the 80s, and we, and we refused to speak about it. We have has had clashes in the current century and we refuse to share details. We have treated our citizens as uh, adolescents while trying to build a relationship with China. On the other hand, we have been loud, aggressive and transparent in our relationships with America when it comes to our public sphere. So our American relationship, even when it was bad, it was quite loud. Even when it is strong, it is quite loud. Our China relationship has been consistently bad, various shades of bad, but we have always suppressed uh, 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 the information and facts in the public sphere. So we have never had an Indian proposition for China. It has always been an elite decision on China. We have never allowed the mood in the street to be shaped by the reality of the politics or politics to be shaped by the mood of the street. We have maintained the proverbial Chinese wall between the two. <laughs> so I think this is the second thing that we have never created a discourse which is sensible on China. And therefore, you either have those who are called panda huggers who think China is the best thing since sliced bread or those who are China hawks who believe that um, mortal combat is the only solution. Uh, uh, we have never had a sensible, realist assessment of China that they are going to be our big political challenge and yet we can find economic space to benefit from their, their growth, like the Chinese did to America. The Chinese were clear that America is their threat, that is their political rival, is trying to take away their land, is trying to dominate their waters. 
is trying to create the uh, the the what is it the string of pearls yeah. around their um, uh, uh, growth they were very clear about all of this and yet they were able to build a sensible economic policy where chinese where the americans were to underwrite eventually the their biggest geopolitical rival in the 21st century american investments american money american trade american capital created america's biggest rival because china was honest in their appraisal of america that they are our main political threat and yet they are our great economic opportunity because we don't want to have a clear understanding of china we come up with defensive economic policies and measures and we have uh, ambiguous political postures i think mm. india has failed in this regard as well that we have not been able to build a coherent china policy which is rooted in realist politics and uh, opportunist eco economics chinese were able to do this very well that's the second uh, element the third we have to now uh, uh, grow in a in a in a world uh, and, and this is of course uh, we had the wasted years which i spoke about that uh, we were lethargic inertia uh, when we should have been um, growing at the same pace as china we were uh, uh, choosing to uh, uh, choose the a spiritual path rather than uh, uh, you know create um, a, a national mission to uh, to change the lives of our people and make that the spiritual cause you know mm -hmm. so uh, 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 we we lost years etc but uh, more recently the third thing that i have come to suddenly realize is that we have allowed the chinese to consistently over the last 70 years game our public sphere you know today it is apparent we talk about tiktoks and we talk about chinese apps and we talk about chinese presence in our digital but if you look at our early years you look at our newspapers from the early times you look at some of the journalists and editors who used to be opinion shapers you look at some of the key influencers in the 70s and 80s and 90s uh, you look at the universities and colleges where knowledge was produced and where moods were built up and where where ideas were created we always allowed chinese great ingress into our public sphere mm. and we never got reciprocity our relationship with china has always been non reciprocal china was able to come into our system choose what it wanted to partake with or partake in and we were always uh, uh, kept out of so in that sense a non reciprocal uh, uh, civil society engagement has continued to define our relationship so we had a poor civil society relationship we had a incoherent political assessment and a poor economic response therefore and we always hid the truth from our people we hid it in 1962 and we have hid it this summer in ladakh in galwan so so would the actions that we have taken for the first time this time when we have banned certain chinese apps and we are obviously uh, you know one of the rare occasions where uh, we have even responded uh, albeit not uh, in equal measure because nobody knows what really has happened beyond the point but we have responded even at a micro level militarily would this be a distinct change from our policy of the past then you know yes and no i think we have responded militarily to them even or even before i think like i mentioned in 67 uh, like i mentioned you know we have done that consistently uh, we have we have uh, uh, had uh, many uh, conflicts and many Uh, battles with the chinese a few times uh, so in that sense to be fair uh, our armed forces our military our uh, uh, security establishment has responded this time of course we are in a highly mediated and hyper mediated world so everything seems to be uh, brand new everything seems to be happening for the first time hmm. it's not that it's not happened before so i think uh, on, on in that sense yes uh, but i do believe that banning chinese apps and hopefully uh, if what we hear is true banning them from our digital networks the 5g networks mm -hmm. will perhaps be the first significant indian action recognizing the potential chinese threat to india's prosperity and stability if the world is going to be digital if our growth is going to be derived from the digital domain our sanctity as a democracy is going to be decided in the digital public sphere 
our cohesiveness as a society will be shaped by the narratives that are built around these new apps and devices. And therefore, it becomes extremely important that we recognize the dangers and the opportunities that this new world offers. And certainly, uh, like uh, one of my guests at Raisinas mentioned, that uh, uh, allowing Huawei to build your communication networks and even discussing that is like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan having a conversation that should we allow KGB to set up our telecommunication networks. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> so the fact that we were even considering having them participate should tell you how badly we have failed in our China relationship. So true. Assessment of China. The very idea that they could be doing trials and they did trials tells you how much we erred in recognizing what the Chinese proposition was really about. Now, having said that, having understood that digital infrastructure is strategic infrastructure, it is like airports and ports and defense facilities of the future. I still believe that a ban itself will do India uh, good to the extent it protects them, but it will not be enough to allow India to benefit from China. Hmm. So alongside excluding China from the digital domain, the core strategic domain of the future, India will have to create other levers where it can still benefit from Chinese economic activity. I think it will be a travesty if we don't benefit from the fastest growing or the largest growing economy of the 21st century. And foreign policy of the future will be one where we can protect our core assets our core political objectives, like the Chinese very successfully did with the Americans, that we won't, we won't uh, compromise on Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen Square, uh, Hong Kong. We will protect our four or five key political objectives and we will continue to engage with you in other domains. India will have to find that, that new uh, space with China, that we can continuously protect our political future and enrich our economic prospects. I think that would be a complete foreign policy. We have done half of it. I think when you, and, and I, I'm not sure we have done it by the way. Huh? I, if we were to ban them from our communication networks, if we were to ensure that the Chinese control of our, of our digital public sphere is lessened and eventually uh, manageable, uh, we would have done well. But we will also have to find ways of cooperating with them. And it could be on energy projects, it could be on infrastructure, it could be on third countries, it could be investments in certain other sectors and we'll have to find ways to do it. Uh, I see at this particular point of time, chances of the second happening to be remote. I think for the next five or six years, we are going to be in the most choppy phase of our relationship. Uh, the asymmetry between us is too large. Hmm. Chinese, are not, Chinese don't see you as a serious actor. Uh, the Chinese don't even want to talk to you. Uh, it is uh, now embarrassing that we are continuing to plead with them to have a conversation on the border. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, it, it will be, uh, it will do all of us good if we stop seeking any conversation and, and create a, uh, a live border with China. If they want a contested border with troops amassed on both sides, uh, uh, India should be ready to live that reality uh, rather than uh, seek um, indulgence and, and their um, a, a, a grand uh, gestures of, of conversations. I think we are going to be in a, in a terrible space for five, seven years until we move to uh, five to six trillion dollars economic size. At that particular point of time, uh, we can not only maintain our army, but also arm them. Uh, mm. At this particular point of time, we can either pay the salaries or have weapons. I mean, we are at that. Uh, 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 and don't get me wrong. I think we can, we can muster up enough to respond to China. But I think uh, the, because of the, the asymmetry, uh, we need to grow quickly. I think our fo focus has to be economic growth. Our economic growth is India's single most important strategic objective. It, yep. gives, us, it, gives, it gives us political muscle. It gives us military muscle. It may, gives us a diplomatic muscle. It gives us partners. And uh, I think over the next five to six years, when we have this glaring gap between the two countries, we will have to be at our cleverest 
and we will have to see what are the kind of alliances, partnerships, and, and multiplier platforms that we can build, both in terms of hardware, software, diplo and diplomacy, that can keep the dragon at bay. I think in the, in the 2030s, it will be a different story. And by the 2040s, the Chinese would want a durable uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, and in that sense, I think um, uh, the next, uh, the, the four years, three and a half, four years of the current term of the, of the, of the prime minister um, and uh, uh, the next term, the, the, the next uh, Indian democratic cycle are going to be extremely important for how uh, we evolve in our global engagements generally, but also uh, in terms of how we are able to partner with the US and manage the, the Chinese expand, you know, expansion in our continent. Yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from. So actually, this is a very perfect scenario to get into the next phase that I wanted to talk to you about. So in, in, in the first half, when we were talking about, you mentioned, you know, the three contours of the past of the Indian foreign policy, where you mentioned point three was the civilizational uh, continuity. Now, let us let us look at it at a much larger uh, uh, perspective. Now, in my opinion, the biggest uh, debate in India, at least in the political sphere, has been that... Uh, India has always struggled, at least in the social sphere, when it comes to uh, defining the Indian identity, as in there is a typical, you know, political trope that has been given to Indians all the time that we are actually a British creation. There was no <laughs> Indian civilization. We are just different units in different places. And uh, basically, we've been created now after by the British and uh, there is no... in. Yeah, you know, there is no such thing as an Indian civilization. Now, uh, uh, on the other side, obviously, there is this narrative that India is actually a continuing civilization. There was something like a sacred geography, like to use the term Diana Eck used uh, in her book, that uh, Indians always had a sense of nationhood, albeit not in the republic, uh, in the sense of a republic, but in the sense of a civilizational sacred state where, you know, people were connected to each other. Now, in my opinion, foreign policy cannot exist in, in a vacuum. Foreign policy, uh, like, let's take the Chinese as an example, right? Mm -hmm. The Chinese are very clear in their identity. Mm -hmm. The Chinese know who they are. Mm -hmm. The Chinese are very clear that they are a continuing civilization that obviously, you know, comes from the Chinese Confucian ethics. Obviously, that the Taoism is, exists. Also, Buddhism for that matter. Chinese are very clear about their larger way of looking at the world. As in Sanskrit, we have a term, right? Drishti. The Chinese Drishti is very settled. What I find in India is that in India, we still kind of debate that do we even are, are we even supposed to have a Drishti in the first place? It's as if, you know, the, the whole concept, if you start using the word Drishti in India, it is scoffed at or it's looked down upon. I mean, I have never understood this answer when I have this discussion with some of my friends at times. They're like, hum to secular hai. Are, hum to secular hai kya matlab hota hai? Drishti to sabki hoti hai na? Ek civilizational narrative to sabka hota hai. So when it comes to foreign policy, don't you think every nation has to have a drishti, a grand narrative. And from that grand narrative builds the nation's identity. And from that comes the nation's foreign policy. And in that scenario, why can't we look at the past? And let's say, you know, we, you know, people keep talking about Machiavelli, but people forget there was a Cautelia. And in fact, it's very funny that if you read Machiavelli and you read Cautelia, Cautelia is far older and Cautelia is far more elaborate in foreign policy. I mean, that's whole. Arthashastra is primarily 70% foreign policy and 30% was just stuff here and there. So why, why do you think we have, we struggle to, uh, to actually use our past and our identity when it comes to even formulating our foreign policy? No, I think uh, that's a, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. I think, um, and thank you for asking this. Because, you know, I did mention that the next um, five to seven years or the next, the current term and the next Indian democratic cycle are going to be decisive. And I did mention it's going to define our relationship with the two big powers. But I think primarily uh, what, is, what is bound to happen in the next uh, decade, in the coming decade, is uh, an emergence of an India consensus. And I think uh, what uh, we have um, postponed for the longest period uh, 
for the fear that we were a fragile nation we were an experiment as an as a country we were a, uh, like you said a creation of the post colonial order we were uh, we were uh, we were inorganic rather than an organic uh, uh, unit uh, mm -hmm. we have we have never really had an honest uh, full blown um, prolonged um, engagement with who we are we have always focused on who we want to be mm. and uh, that want to be was defined in uh, first the modernity project and then the post modern project so we saw ourselves in a like a european styled uh, country you know we kind of defined ourselves like you have uh, spain or italy or germany which has history which has a past which has kingdoms and civilizations but they are now a modern state detached from many of its roots uh, with a dominant culture which is still uh, drawing from their past but a constitution that in a sense uh, completes uh, the social arrangements and the social contracts and that is what we want to be right that is something that we try to be so if you look at the debates in the constitution uh, uh, while the constitution was being written if you look at the constitution itself we are defined in terms of a modern project uh, and yet none of the participants in uh, the building of modern india were divorced from their from the idea and the ideals of a civilization state and you can see from the writings of nehru himself you know who was the first prime minister to uh, the leaders of today you would see that consistently our prime ministers have uh, and our leaders and our senior political leaders and our senior so uh, social leaders have had moorings and rootings in in something beyond just the modern project right all of them in their own ways have been uh, have been attached to something older than the nation itself uh, and in that sense we have never verbalized what that old was yeah so while we all draw from our thousands of years we have never probably had the courage to put it down on paper as what that what that thousands of years of learning were so i think in some sense our project of a modern nation state is incomplete as long as we don't bring our past onto the table and we were scared to bring our past onto the table because we were told we are very fragile hmm because you know we will we will not be able to uh, manage the contradictions yeah. of the invasions of the colonial rule of the uh, uh, of the various uh, uh, kingdoms and and principalities and dynasties and 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 uh, and um, dominions so we were told it's 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 a, it's a project where as a young country we must focus look ahead uh, you know and and uh, look back only to draw energy to look ahead uh, mm -hmm. uh, and i think there was a incomplete uh, uh, hyphenation with our past so that's one idea so i think that has to be clearly a project that is going to happen because because uh, the generations that were engaged in the nation building project post 1947 are now no longer uh, uh, active or uh, uh, in charge or at the helm and you folks are now beginning to take charge and your generation is divorced from the fragilities that were implanted into the minds of those generation and are seeking to explore the past with greater boldness i think there were two or three generations post our independence which were scared to delve into areas that you very casually stroll into so uh, i also see in the next 7 to 8 to 9 years we are going to see a far greater exposition of our history of our civilizational experiences of even our mythological basis and you're going to see a far it is also going to be a decade where india's political debates therefore are going to be more heated louder uh, because we are adding a new dimension but also because many more people are participating in it when the in modern indian state project was being uh, uh, undertaken few elites were deciding the future of the country now you can call it it was very diverse it had everyone it had all religions etc i'm not finding fault that was the that was the reality of those times we were a smaller country with smaller people capable of engaging in these key conversations today we are a younger country with many more wanting to voice their opinion with many more wanting to participate in india's political future with many more uh, 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 young uh, uh, 
generation more confident of looking back while looking ahead. Uh, many embracing the past to, uh, to, to soar into the future. We will see a more complex conversation emerge. I have no doubt that at the end of that conversation, and it's going to be, it's going to be sometimes nasty, sometimes hateful, sometimes love, you know, enjoy yourselves. I, I mean, I, I bless you. Enjoy your public sphere that you are uh, uh, creating and inheriting. But I have, in my opinion, and I've said this earlier, I think after all the heat and dust has settled and that the long conversations are over, we will reach the same conclusion. And what are those conclusions? Those conclusions are that we are basically good people. The conclusion is that we are basically a plural society. We are welcoming of all identities. We are interested in doing business. We are not a warring tribe. We are people who are expands who, who who expand in the mind our expansionism is through the thought and the idea space that is what every book of ours will tell you that it is the mind which has unlimited and boundless uh, potential and possibilities so you will find that after all the hullabaloo and everything you will come to the same conclusion that the constitution in 1947 gave you but because that was a process which in some sense benefited from um, a smaller group of folks having deeper and longer conversations versus millions today on Twitter having shorter conversations, snappy <laughs> conversations, peppy conversations. Uh, you know, th that process and this process are going to be different. It doesn't mean, and I keep telling people, that, uh, and I said this when, uh, I think uh, when uh, Shashi and I released the last book together, uh, I think um, uh, on the NDTV show, I was asked that, um, uh, our, uh, is our, uh, the secularism enshrined in our constitution uh, needs to be preserved. I said, our secularism does not come from our constitution. Our constitution captures our secularism. Hmm. We were secular and plural far before the constitution came into existence. But we are not the Euro style secular. We are not uh, 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 a country where the majority community ruled, deprived, and, and plundered and ravaged minorities around the world. We don't have colonial guilt like the Europeans did. We did not have majoritarian dominations for centuries and, and, and millennia like, the, uh, like others, others had. We had a very mixed historic. Uh, uh, record of various um, identities um, managing uh, the Indian subcontinent. And therefore, the ethics and the mechanics of our pluralism are different. And if they are different, then the treatment and its preservation and its propagation also have to be different. I got it. So, so here's a follow-up to that now, because we have to finish with the future. And here's the thing about the future. The world is getting digitized. We are going on digitizing ourselves. I mean, you're on a podcast that's going to be released on a digital platform. foreign policy Recently, just to give everybody an example, there was this, you know, uh, Indians being um, attacked uh, outside India in uh, in Arab nations, and then you know, actually the Arab uh, officials had to clarify that no, 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 there's nothing of this sort. And then some people were doing this, and then some people were doing that. We're living in a constantly digitized world, and foreign policy. We can't say foreign policy is now going to be insulated from what happens in the digital. Uh, I don't know what word should I use here. The digital town square. The digital town square is now going to have, if not a major effect right now, but some sort of effect in foreign policy in the future. So, so before we wrap this discussion up, so what are your views in the future of foreign policy and the kind of threat these digital platforms actually provide in a very weird, weird way? Because I, I get we talk about the monopoly of the Chinese and stuff like that, but 
just think about it. Actually, Twitter, Facebook, they have digitized the global town square. You know, in Morocco, someone asked me, I was, I was hosting a, a, a digital conversation in Morocco. Uh, and I, I was asked that, uh, did India's 2019 elections have external interference? Someone asked me this question. And I said, no, we are very lucky, unlike the Americans who claim that uh, the Russians elected their president. Uh, in India, we elected our own prime minister. Mm. So, uh, but then he came back to me in the second round of questions. I said, I want to change my first answer. I would say that 2019 was India's first uh, election which saw global participation. Because our public squares, our digital public squares, the ones that you just named and more, had voices from all over the world were shaping public opinion, were creating trends, uh, and platforms are deciding which of those uh, trends to privilege. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right? Uh, Facebook was deciding what is uh, good and what is bad. Uh, yeah. Twitter was uh, uh, either banning uh, voices or, uh, or uh, uh, allowing them to use ad money to magnify their voice. So I said, increasingly, there is going to be no national election. There are going to be national voters, yeah. but there are going to be international elections. Samir Saran's vote is going to be influenced by the 25 influencers who he trusts, who may have an opinion on Indian future, Indian economics, Indian foreign policy, Indian social policy. Kushal is going to decide based on his ecosystem, which may have no Indian at all. So increasingly, the digital public square is going to disregard sovereignty at a time when nationalist impulses seem to yeah. So I think there is a contradiction here. That nationalism, uh, and, and uh, let me nuance it. Nationalism in some cases, majoritarianism in most cases, mm. is competing against and competing on platforms that are global by definition. Yeah. Right? You are, you, are, you are propagating nationalism and majoritarianism on a platform that is a product of globalization. Yeah. <laughs> right? So that is one challenge. That how do you maintain a national identity, a national consensus, a national brand, a national vision in an age where international opinions will shape it more than ever. And do we want to build that? And, and is that a bad thing? So I think smart countries and, and uh, successful countries of the future will take the best of views that are available in the digital space to build the best set of national uh, policies and options that benefit their locality. Hmm. So I think that those are going to be clever nations. I think it is nearly impossible to shut the world out. Yeah. You can certainly create games where certain people can participate and certain don't. The Chinese have created a digital firewall, which isolates the middle kingdom from uh, uh, progress, modernity and, and enlightenment. But uh, uh, it, of course, there are ways to stop some flows of some information. But I think countries that will succeed will be countries who embrace the digital public space and become influencers in shaping outcomes in that space. So uh, it is no longer important to win the debates in the UN General Assembly. It is going to be important to shape the mood and the trends in the digital public squares. Governments who don't know how to navigate the space will suffer. We are suffering because we are behind the curve when it comes to managing information in this age. India is reacting. India is not setting pace. And I think that is something that we need to up uh, in terms of our uh, capabilities in the coming days. The second challenge, of course, is going to be the, the, the differential between uh, the homogenization of aspirations and the ability of different states to cater to those. Now, everyone wants a car, everyone wants the same kind of life, but some countries have $2,000 per capita income, some countries have $44,000 per capita income. Everyone wants every country to respond in the same manner to the coronavirus. Some countries have no money in the bank, some countries have overflowing treasuries. You are going to be judged by how Sweden responded to, Indian government is going to be judged by how Switzerland responded to coronavirus. 
True. I mean, that is uh, going to be the, uh, um, uh, the, the differential between uh, uh, human um, aspiration that we want this kind of delivery of governance service and, and uh, it, uh, this is the lifestyle we need versus the true capability of the locality you live in. And that is going to be a big challenge. It is going to uh, be a big headache that um, how do governments cater to uh, global aspirations with their local realities. And I think that is the second challenge. The third, of course, is that the battlefield is going to change. Earlier battlefields were water and, and land. Then you had outer space. You had, uh, 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 of course, uh, water, layer, uh, water, air, land. Then you had outer space. Now you had cyber. The sixth domain fundamentally has already now in play, which is the human mind. It is the battle for managing the human mind to shape human thought, to influence human agendas and the final will be the human body when we are all digitized ourselves semi-digitized when we have uh, uh, you know digitized pacemakers and other devices to help us see help us hear help us think help us uh, walk help us we will all be battlefields by ourselves people will be battling for individuals hmm. uh, and the, the the contest terrains are changing and countries will have to redefine uh, national security as these terrains become more important in the coming decades and all and this is uh, when, when biotechnology, uh, uh, material science, and data science collide uh, before they create the perfect humanoid. I think we are going to go through these various stages where countries will have to rethink uh, the entire assumption of, of uh, national security, of human security, of, of, of uh, strategy. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. In fact, that, that is something that fascinates me the most. I was just thinking the other day, I was like, uh, when Elon Musk is going to come up with Neuralink and basically they're going to put a chip in their brain of yep. a human being and effectively you can't you lie to anymore. What to do, Kushal? Next time when we are in in 50 years when we are having this conversation in my next life, I'll be born again. I'm a, uh, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a Hindu. Uh, so uh, uh, when I come back next life, when we are having this conversation, uh, you will be asking me the question but Huawei will be putting the thought into your mind. <laughs> Unless you get your foreign policy right today. Uh, yeah, that's so true. That, that, that's, that, that's so true. So Samir, before we wrap things up, I, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, is there any book in the pipeline or are there any new projects that you're working on that you'd like everyone to know about? Kushal, I just published in the last six months two books, one on China, Pax Seneca, with a very, very talented young mind. In fact, he's someone to watch out for, Akhil Dev. Read the book for him. I published a book on the world disorder and the failure of global governance with uh, Dr. Shashi Tharoor. He's, uh, he requires no introduction. Read that book for me. Uh, and uh, uh, the current project that I'm working on with a colleague uh, is uh, tentatively titled The Last Grandmaster. I want to look at uh, the, the influence, impact, and uh, motivations of uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Uh, uh, on global affairs. I think he is someone who's underexplored. He's had, uh, he's punched far above his weight mm -hmm. in terms of changing the course of events. And uh, um, because I've um, in the last 10 years spent a lot of time in that uh, country and with many of my colleagues um, uh, uh, meeting me frequently from uh, Moscow and other parts of, uh, of Russia, I think that is something that really fascinates me. So my next big project, my next book project is on Russia. Uh, specifically on, on uh, President Putin and his impact on the world. Uh, and of course, I want to do something now. And I, I, I probably this is going to be my last big geopolitical. But after that, I want to start exploring uh, the areas you and I touched on the very end. Uh, you know, the new terrains of, of, of human complexities and, and contests and conflicts and management and prosperity, which is, you know, which is when material science collides with data science, collides with material science. And in that sense, your podcast, the materialist podcast, uh, is, a, is a good place to, to take that conversation forward as well. I look forward to that. Uh, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to listen to you and uh, hear you speak on various platforms and always read your articles. It's, you know, I, I've always looked uh, look forward to your perspective. It's a fresh perspective. And, and here's the thing, you know, in today's climate and today's cacophony of voices, it's always nice to uh, hear people who talk sensibly. Everybody seems to be so angry on the digital sphere. So, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And uh, once again, Samir, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. 
thanks kushala i'm sorry if it was it took longer than you had planned oh no 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 so the good thing about podcast is the time is never an issue <laughs> thanks for having me kushala oh. All right, guys. So, if you want to check out all the information in relation to Samir, I've left them all in the description of the podcast. You can go and check his page out at ORF. Also, they, you know, it's it's with all his Twitter, Facebook. All the details are there mentioned on the ORF page. If you want to buy his books, I would recommend all of you to go and buy his books. If you like what I'm doing over here, please subscribe to the podcast, like the video, share the video, listen to what thoughts uh, Samir had to offer, think about them, and give me your comments. You know, you know where to leave your comments on the comment section or in the Twitter and. and if you like what i'm doing here you can join the membership program on the youtube channel or you can support me on patreon uh, i try my best to bring interesting conversations to you and you know what i do on patreon and uh, on the membership channel on saturdays we have a discussion on indian philosophy and on sundays we discuss uh, a different books so until then i'll see you next time namaste take care goodbye